So maybe to, to start out with, um, I want to make just two introductory comments. And one is that if, if you've not been here for, or, or listened to the last six messages, this message will make zero sense to you. So, no one's getting up and leaving yet. <laughs> so... Um, it, it is truly, I just want to emphasize that. I, I'm going to take for granted, I have to, uh, six weeks of, of preaching now. Um, but I'm going I'm to refer back to it. So if you've been here, um, we'll be bringing the last six weeks in this morning. And uh, that leads me to my next comment, and that is that this sermon is very unusual and should be unusual in the sense that I'm, I'm not going to be referencing hardly any scripture. And I, I really struggled with this. Um, but, but if I could have, I would have liked to preach um, a, 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 an eight-hour sermon. And then this last hour would just have been application, after all the in the text. So that's what I'm treating this as is that we, we, we've been in the scriptures for the last six weeks, and now we're going to take those scriptures and work it in terms of some, some specific applications. And then um, and next week, no, we'll come back to the scriptures. Next week, we'll conclude this series. So, having said those things, uh, we know that over the last six weeks, We've been working, and I, I trust you've been working with me, to lay a foundation, uh, uh, the foundations of external temple worship, Sunday morning worship, which is to say. And we've been trying to lay the foundations for that in a biblical theology of worship. So our practice of worship, which is what we do here every Sunday. I mean, you think about it, how, does, how do churches decide what they're going to do on Sunday morning, right? And you, you go to different churches, you might get a different flavor, as it were. They do different things. And you, you might always wonder, well, why do they do it that way? Why do they decide to do it this way? And so whatever our practice of worship is, it ought to be the superstructure that's built on this foundation. If we used a different metaphor, we could think of our theology of worship is the dirt and the soil, and then our practice of worship needs to send its roots deep into that soil and grow only out of that soil. So if you can't trace your practice of worship, if you can't trace everything you do in worship, down to the soil of the theology of worship, then there's a disconnect, there, there's a problem. And so it's, in the end, it's our theology of worship that helps us to be able to see and then embrace happily uh, the specific parts of temple worship that God has prescribed in his word. So we can list those parts as the Lord's Supper, baptism, um, the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, prayer, congregational singing, and the congregational amen. I like to add that there on the end. 
And it's also our theology of worship that guides us as to how we ought to engage in all those specific parts of worship. So, like, okay, is it all right to use uh, cupcakes for the Lord's Supper? Is there anything intrinsically wrong with a cupcake? Anything intrinsically wrong with that? Nothing intrinsically wrong with that. We have to, take, we have to go to a theology of worship. Because some of us are going to say, oh, that's terrible, I don't like that. Well, don't say that unless you can give a biblically and theologically solid reason for it. Otherwise, you're going to get caught when they say, what is wrong with a cupcake? Right? Did the Bible say, we, we, why don't we use wine? Do we use grape juice? Is that all right? Um, leavened bread, unleavened bread, there were whole controversies and splits in the church over that kind of stuff. So, so how do we engage in the Lord's Supper? What about baptism? How should we engage in baptism? What should that look like? We know baptism is a part of worship. But how do we do it? Our theology of worship will guide us in that. All right. So what I'm describing here has been traditionally affirmed in Reformed churches as the regulative principle of worship. So what we've just done, now I'm just giving a name to it. So we could take the last six sermons in this series and essentially gather it all together under this umbrella label, the regulative principle of worship. Now, the regulative principle of worship, let me just unpack that label for a minute so that we can then come to some specifics. The regulative principle of worship acknowledges that it is God's right to regulate his own worship. We, a lot of times we think of worship is what I do. And, and in a sense, yes, but worship is God's own. Okay, So he has the right to regulate his own worship, to tell us what worship is, what should be part of it. And the regulative principle of worship affirms that God does, in fact, regulate his own worship. So the Baptist Confession, which we've been going through and we were going through in Sunday school, speaks of God instituting, limiting, and prescribing the acceptable way of worshiping him. That's, that's like elementary at one level, but it's also unbelievably overlooked in our culture today. Um, God's institution of worship, if we start with that first word, reminds us that he invented worship. <laughs> he, he tells us what it is. So that will be the substance of worship the substance of what it is. When it says that God limits and prescribes his worship, that reminds us that he has told us how not to and how to engage in the worship he instituted. So he said, this is what worship is in its substance. And then he said, and here are the parts of my worship. So a guy named Alexander, Archibald Alexander Hodge wrote in 1869, an explicit positive revelation is necessary not only to tell man that God will admit 
his worship or accept and look with favor upon his worship at all, but also to prescribe the principles upon which and the methods in which that worship and service may be rendered. So there's like the, the um, theology of worship would be the principles and the methods would be the parts of worship. So when we talk about the regulative principle of worship, a lot of times people hear um, legalism in that as though Timothy is now going to regulate our worship or the elders are. And if, but that's not the point here. The point is God regulates his worship. And of course, whenever anyone is in charge of ordering a service of worship, they are, in a sense, regulating, but hopefully they're only seeking to recognize God's regulation of his worship. So the point is not human regulations, but our responsibility to order the service of divine worship according and in the light of God's supreme right to regulate his own worship. Again, we ought not to take for granted what we do here, how we do it, um, and why we do it. It goes back to what Lance was reading about the fear of God. There's just this sense that, oh, we can, do, we can kind of do what, pretty much whatever we want. We're, we're free at, at a big level. We'll come to that in a minute. So simply put, let me just put it simply, worship is covenantal, communal, and dialogical. And God has revealed to us the way that we should engage as a community in this covenant dialogue with him. We've seen that over the last six weeks. Okay, the regulative principle of worship. I'm taking each word. We took the word regulative. Now let's take the word principle. It's a principle. Now, since it's a biblical principle, it's authoritative. It's not something, you don't say, well, that's just a principle. I can do what I like with it. Principles are authoritative, and we are bound by them. But yet, there's also an interesting reality that good men may differ to a certain extent, to a certain extent, in how we apply the principle. And we may need to still exercise wisdom and discernment in humility, in details and specifics. Furthermore, let me just take it further. Since the regulative principle of worship, it is not essential to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So you're like, well, I didn't hear about the regulative principle of worship for now. Maybe I wasn't a Christian until now. No, right? It is not essential to a saving knowledge, but it's not peripheral, and it's not unimportant. Nevertheless, we, we should embrace brothers and sisters who don't understand the regulative principle, or who do understand it and don't accept it. I would say in the same way that if we have a brother or sister in the Presbyterian Church who believes that you should baptize your infants, I disagree strongly. But I embrace them as my brother and sister. Right Now, we're not going to start practicing infant baptism here just because I love my brothers and sisters who do that. Right? So we, we, we have convictions, and yet we love and embrace those who disagree. 
even on matters that we think are pretty important. I would say that the regulative principle of worship is pretty important. So, finally, the regulative principle of worship. Let's take that last word, which is really important. Because it deals, this principle deals only with worship itself. What I mean by worship itself is it deals with the substance of worship and the parts of worship, not with the peripheral circumstances of worship. And this is where a lot of people who have struggles with the regular principle, they get tripped up on this. So let me use as an example the time of day. Like some people will say, well, if you're saying God regulates his worship, then you're saying that God has to tell us everything that we do in worship, including what time we worship. And he has to tell us that you're allowed to use electricity in worship. And he has to tell us that you're allowed to put scriptures on a screen in worship. And he has to tell us everything explicitly. And of course, that's not what the regulative worship says. Um, The time of day is a circumstance of worship, but has nothing to do with its substance or its parts. Does that make sense? Substance or parts. So we can say the same thing of the place where worship is observed. God did not tell us that this body, you must meet at 304 East Jackson Street. That's a circumstance of worship, not substance or parts. Uh, The use of bulletins and hymnals, or the use of PowerPoint software. So while it's true that God did not prescribe the use of electricity in connection with his worship, that obviously doesn't mean we can't use electricity, because that's a circumstance of worship, and has nothing to do with its substance or parts. The Baptist Confession affirms this distinction when it says there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God that are common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So that is the regulative principle of worship. Regulative principle of worship. Now, let's get, we're going to talk about three things this morning. How should we determine what things are proper or appropriate or wise or permissible in the church's worship? Do you think that's a legitimate question to ask? Is it a valid question? This sermon series has suggested that the answer to that question is simple, but also very profound. And so in the words, I'll take the words of one author who says it like this. We are only to do in worship, if we're going to call it worship, those things commanded by the word of God Directly, or those things required by good and necessary inference. Moreover, we must do in worship all that the Bible requires. 
In other words, we can't say, well, I like the, all the ingredients of worship are nice and God suggested those things, but let's not do this part. Let's just do this part. Or this week, we're only going to do these things and, not, and then next week, we'll do the other parts of worship. So God is, is, has revealed in this theology of worship what worship is. And so we see how we determine what things are permissible or proper to engage in in worship. Now, many, many sincere and, and genuine and true Christians assume, and sometimes it's just an assumption because we haven't thought about it, or they believe because we've thought it through, that we are free to worship in whatever ways we like. So long as these ways, there is a criteria, so long as they're not explicitly forbidden in the scripture, meaning they're not sinful, and we, everyone would agree you shouldn't do something in worship that's sinful, right? Or that God said, don't do that. Um, and so long as they are spiritually edifying to God's people. So obviously we shouldn't do something here that's not edifying to the body, or that, doesn't glor- that can't bring glory to God. So the question then is not, what has God instituted and prescribed? So in other words, we're not asking, what did God institute? What did God prescribe? But rather, what has God not forbidden? Do you see the difference? So if God has not forbidden it, we are free to do it, is the way that this approach is worship. And that view is traditionally labeled the normative principle of worship. The normative. In other words, it's just this. God did not specifically regulate or prescribe his worship. But it's not a complete free-for-all, right? We must still worship according to basic biblical norms. Example, must be edifying, must be God-glorifying, and must promote peace and unity in the church. We shouldn't do things that are going to promote disunity in the church. It would seem, however, that these norms, it it can't be sinful, it has to be edifying, and it has to be something that is glorifying to God. All of a sudden, worship is what? Everything. All of a sudden, we've lost our distinction between internal worship and external worship. We'll see that in a minute. So it would seem to me that these norms are so broad and so far-reaching as to say only that worship should be Christian. In other words, yes, there is a limit to how we worship. Worship must be Christian. And for that reason, I believe free principle of worship. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but I believe that's a more accurate descriptive label. It, It contrasts regulative with free. We see more clearly the difference. So the main point of this alternative to the regulative principle is not so much worship must conform to these obvious norms, but rather that within those assumed norms we are free to worship in whatever ways we choose. But is this free principle rooted in a biblical theology of worship? Now, I'll say that most 
most churches today operate on a free principle ground at, at some level. The Bible has not explicitly forbidden dramatic presentations in worship. So a skit, a monologue, a dramatic monologue, miming, um, an interpretive dance. The Bible has not forbidden those explicitly as a part of the church's worship. But wait a minute. <laughs> we have to ask, what is worship? If we know what worship is, and if we're not confusing internal worship with external temple worship, the answer is things might become suddenly rather clear in our minds. So a dramatic presentation, someone gets up here and does a a skit, a group of people do a skit. That might be spiritually edifying, right? I would hope if it's done here, it ought to be spiritually edifying. It may communicate biblical truth. It might move people to praise and thanksgiving. It can certainly be done to the glory of God. So according to the free principle of worship, drama is an acceptable part or element of the church's worship. And some people, I think this is interesting, because some will say, well, that's too, that's, but that's entertainment. I don't believe in entertainment in, in church. And I agree. Um, but but what is, what's, what's wrong with entertainment? If, if entertainment, well, you can call it what you want, but if entertainment is edifying to the body, if it communicates biblical truth, and if it can be done with a goal of glorifying God, then call it entertainment, call it whatever you want. But the free principle of worship says it's appropriate in the worship of the church. Uh, the same thing might be said of, as I said, interpretive dance, an artistic drawing presentation. What if someone's good at art and, and they can do uh, art and, and, and as they uh, draw, they talk and it's kind of... Or a biblically themed magic presentation, unless you believe that all magic is evil and then obviously that would not... That would be God said, don't do that in worship. Um, and what about other gifts and talents presentations? Now, I I want to say, it cannot be too strongly emphasized that those who hold to either the... If you're a regulative principle person or a free principle person, both of you believe that any one of those things, an interpretive dance, a biblical theme magic presentation, an artistic drawing presentation, they can all be spiritually edifying. All of them spiritually edifying. All of them begun to the glory of God. But where the regulative and the free principles part ways is on the question of whether or not these otherwise good, God-glorifying, edifying things are appropriate or right specifically in the context of temple worship, given what God has told us worship is. So on the face of it, Let's just point out, none of those things were prescribed by God. It's very clear what God has prescribed. Lord's Supper, baptism, reading the word, preaching the word, 
Congregational singing prayer. Simple. It's right there. Boom. And God has been very clear about those parts of his worship. But none of these other things have been prescribed by God as part of his worship. Let's just say that a skit or a drama, that might communicate biblical truth. There are many ways that biblical truth can be communicated. But that should not be confused with the preaching and teaching that is prescribed in Scripture. So we cannot substitute a a drama that communicates biblical truth for the proclamation for the preaching and teaching of the word because they're not the one is not a substitute for the other god prescribed not a dramatic communication of biblical truth in a skit god prescribed the preaching of his word that is important and decisive consideration in a sense that's all i need to say but let's go deeper there's another question to ask Is a drama or dramatic presentation, is it appropriate, fitting, permissible, given what worship is, given the covenantal, communal, and dialogical calling upon the name of the Lord, hearing, responding, communally, nature of what worship is? In all the examples that I just mentioned, and I think we could already hopefully be able to answer that, but in all the examples I just mentioned, there is a basic element of performance. And for performance is not a four-letter word. <laughs> performance is a good thing. God gave us things like that. To perform is to present to an audience Performance is an act of presenting a play, a concert, or other form of entertainment. There's nothing wrong with this. Performance can be spiritually edifying. It can be done to the glory of God. Performance can be an expression of internal worship. How much of what you do should be an expression of worship? Everything, because you're the creature and God's the creator, and so everything the creature does ought to be done with with a... Uh, an eye to the Lord. <laughs> and yet for all that, as good as performance can be, it is in all of its forms, in all of its expressions, it is fundamentally opposed to the covenantal, communal, and dialogical nature of what worship is. Now, e- even, if, even if you have a presentation that's not intended as entertainment, certainly. It may still be ipso facto, right? By the very nature of the case, a performance. And so I just want to say, whether, whether we would all agree with all of this, even w- those who would not, it is a deep sensitivity to this reality. And it is a deep longing to affirm and to celebrate in every way possible this covenantal, communal, and dialogical nature of temple worship. It is that sensitivity and it is that longing to celebrate that leads many churches 
to choose not to include special presentations of any kind in their service of worship. And so for these churches, they're not saying, we can't do that. They're saying, oh, I, I, I see a vision of what worship is, and I want to go pursue that. It looks lovely and beautiful. One of the more common types of special presentations in some churches today is that part of the service that's been traditionally called, which traditionally called, special music. And uh, for, for many years at this church, we had special music every week. And no, I am not and have not repented of that. In terms of saying, Lord, I have sinned. Right? Uh, that's not the point here. But there is always the point of growing in our, in our understanding of the theology of worship and always seeking to bring it more into conformity with that theology. So special music, or, or even ministry in music, as maybe it could be called. It is any musical presentation, because it must be music for it to be called special music, obviously, that is special. And I think, that the, I think the label it's, it's traditionally been given is helpful. It is telling, at least in terms of our cultural experience of special music. It's special because it's not congregational. There's a special person who does it, not everyone. And because it's generally performed by those who have some level of musical talent. Now, how should we evaluate biblically the inclusion of special music as a part of temple worship? Now, I'm not asking you to just let me spoon feed you. Uh, if you. If you don't agree with me, that's going to be fine too. But I'm just inviting you to think it through with me and even before me and wrestle with it. So the first thing we need to acknowledge is that special music, and by the way, I'm, you could say, well, the Bible says singing in worship. So can't one person sing? Well, I, I think that's possible, yes. But we're going to get to that in a minute. Right now I'm talking about special music as it's traditionally and culturally been approached. So that we have a point in our service where someone with musical gifting and talent comes up and does a special number in worship. Uh, The first thing we have to acknowledge is that special music is never prescribed by God as a part of his worship. Whether by explicit command, by general principle, or by redemptive historical precedent. We, we just have to candidly affirm it's not there. Which is, which is why it's not a sin not to do special music in church. No, no one believes that special music is required as a part of worship. No one believes that. I don't, know, I don't think anyone does. So we're going to come back to that idea in a minute. But we can go further now. It's not prescribed in the Bible, but let's ask this question. Why might special music not be prescribed by God as one of the parts of his worship? Why might that be? Well, given our biblical theology of worship, we might answer this this way. 
the arbitrarily exclusive nature of special music, and I say arbitrarily because there are some exclusive things connected with worship, the roles of men and women. But that's a theologic, theologically exclusive reality. Arbitrarily exclusive is you have, a, you have this talent that someone else doesn't have. So that, that rather arbitrarily exclusive nature of, of, this, of special music combined with the performative element of special music, even when it's spiritually edifying, and I'm not saying it's not spiritually edifying. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with performance. Uh, someone at, at their music recital performs to the glory of God, may perform a piece that's spiritually edifying. So it glorifies God and is edifying, but it's a performance. So this exclusive nature of special music combined with the performative element of special music is fundamentally at odds with the communal, dialogical nature of what temple worship is. Now, on these theological grounds, we've laid the theological groundwork. Let me ask pragmatically, just a pragmatic question, which if I didn't build this question on the theology, it would be be irrelevant. Should we spend time in temple worship listening to a singer perform for the glory of God? when we could all be singing together? Is it, is it best, let me put it this way, to spend time in temple worship, not at the gifts and talents night that we all get together for, not at the recital, I'm not talking about that, but in temple worship, listening to a choir perform for the glory of God, when we could all be engaging in that activity that God has called us to of calling upon his name and proclaiming the Lord's name together. Now, then we might ask, is it always inappropriate for a person to sing a song individually in worship? And and now we might be starting to say to ourselves, oh, this is too much work. Well, this is so much work, I have a feeling something's wrong with this, right? What we're seeking to do is, you've got to decide what you're going to do here. And what we're seeking to do is root it in a biblical theology. So let me ask you this. Is it always wrong for a person to sing a song individually in worship? I would not say that necessarily. Perhaps a man might lead the congregation in prayer via a song or a hymn. In this case, he's not going to have to have a lot of talent. In fact, talent isn't what it's about. God gave us pretty much, really it used to be, everyone could sing. Everyone sang. Everyone could sing. Today, since we don't sing anymore, a lot of people can't sing or think they can't sing. But the beauty of it used to be that everyone could hold a tune and enough to sing. And so, given this picture, only the most basic ability to hold a tune will be necessary. And most any man who is called to lead in worship should be able to pray with a song. 
In other words, the point is no longer talent, but prayer. However, I would point out that if the words and the tune are known to the congregation, it would usually seem only fitting and natural for the congregation to join in singing. But not a rule that they would have to, again. If, if a man is leading the congregation in prayer, and he's leading them in prayer by singing that prayer, then, then there's nothing, I can't see anything the problem with that. It's perfectly in fitting with our theology of worship. Communal, dialogical, covenantal. It becomes easier, a bit easier, to see the performative element of special music. Remember, is performative element bad? No. It's glorifying to God and edifying to people, to Christians. But there is a performative element, and we see that easier, along with its exclusive nature, reserved to those with specific talents, in the case of instrumental solos. And I have done many instrumental solos in church. I don't feel conviction of some great sin in doing it. I, I, I won't personally do that in the future, in temple worship. Because I, I am aware, I, we talked about this as elders, I, I remember a time I, I was invited to come to Moody Church and play my violin for the offertory. And I went and I played this beautiful, fancy, complicated arrangement of holy, holy, holy. Could I do that as an expression of internal worship? Yes. Uh, was it edifying to the people? I believe it was. The arrangement was appropriate to the words. and the, But there was also definitely a performative element. And maybe the people, as they listened, were, were thanking the Lord for the talent he had given me, right? To, to, to bless them with this. That's, that's great. But there is a very real performative element. And when I finished playing, that I remember specifically, that one went really well for me. And that's a temptation then for me, in my heart. And when I was finished, the whole place just erupted in applause. Now, am I judging the heart of everyone who clapped? No. Uh, and I'm not saying that was sinful. But what I'm saying is that in the context of temple worship, I think it was an indicator of a performative element in this that was not fitting for the theology of worship that I see in Scripture. Now you can say, well, you're just saying you can't clap, no clapping. You're such a killjoy and a stooge, right? No clapping. Well, no, the clapping isn't itself what I think the problem was. I think it was an indicator of that performative element as well as the exclusive element. Only someone who's got talent can go up and do that in worship. And that specific talent. There's a lot of talents who might not be allowed to be showcased in worship because they don't fit. An additional consideration when it comes to instrumental solos is that even though we might know the words to the song, I mean, we put it up on the screen, the communal and dialogical nature of Worship always assumes and requires the spoken word. The visual word that God speaks is a special case in the Lord's Supper and Baptism. So God speaks to us by his word read, preached, and sung, and we respond by audibly, not in our minds, silently, but from everyone else, that's not communal, uh, and verbally calling upon his name. 
So external temple worship is intimately bound up with speech. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 7, where it says, All the sons of Israel worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Romans 7, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, coming back to a point I made a minute minute ago, no one argues that special music is a required part of Sunday morning worship. No one says that. So it's fine if we don't, right? Haven't broken any rules or dishonored God by not having special music. Now, we would, we would break a rule and dishonor God if we didn't have preaching, if we didn't have congregational singing, if we didn't have any baptisms, if we didn't have the, read, the word read, and if we didn't pray. We'd be breaking a rule, as it were. But no rules are broken if you don't have special music. So that then leads us to ask the question, what are the reasons, we we must give reasons, why it should be included? And the most common reason offered is probably that special music gives people opportunities to use the gifts God has given them for his glory. I would point out, Only people with musical gifts, unless we allow other giftings. And I would also ask, is temple worship the only place where someone can use his or her musical talents for the glory of God? Now, I know we know the answer to that, and I don't think that is in itself the the answer. But it's just a question to keep in mind. I was talking to my brother-in-law, and he was talking. He, he went to Moody in the uh, music studies, and uh, he he had uh, his friends who, who who always feel like their talents need to be used in worship, and if they're not used in worship, they feel like unfulfilled in their talents, as it were. And he's one very musical, and he's struggled with that attitude. And, you know, that's something we all ought to remember, whatever our contributions we might want to make. It's, it's not about our individual contributions, but about the dialogue we engage in with God as a community. It might also be pointed out that special music gives people the opportunity to be blessed and edified by the gifts God has given to others. So we can say, well, then you're robbing people of this opportunity to be blessed. Now, I want to say... These observations are true enough in themselves. I'm not denying that you might be blessed by the thumping by special music. And I'm not denying that the person who does special music is using his gifts for the glory of God. That's not to, to be denied. But, even given those sincere and spiritual motives, the result may still not be in accord with a biblical theology of worship. Having spiritual reasons doesn't mean that your, that your reasons and the conclusion is actually biblically sound. 
That, that's a strange thought for a lot of us because a lot of times we think if my motives are spiritual and sincere, then the result ought to be biblical. And that's something we just have to make sure we know is not true. I could have the most sincerest and the most spiritual motives in the world, but the result not be biblical. Remember the reason given for observing the Lord's Supper less often. Why do, we, why do many churches choose not to observe the Lord's Supper every week? Because everyone's, why do they do that? Why do they do this, right? Well, the reason usually often given is that it guards against the Lord's Supper becoming a mindless ritual. We don't want to do it too often because if we do it too often, it will become meaningless. Now, there's other reasons might be given, but that's certainly one often given. Now, is that reasoning sincere? Am I going to say, you are a bad person. That's a terrible, unbiblical, uh, false reason. No, that might be sincere. There might, there's very spiritual motives. They might really want to guard the Lord's Supper from being mindless. But that doesn't mean that those reasonings are in accord with the biblical theology of worship. It is telling, then, that the churches that do not hold to the regular principle, free principle churches, are much more likely to emphasize, at least traditionally, weekly special music, but also less likely to observe the Lord's Supper weekly. So if you go to a free principle church of the kind that I grew up in, and that's not a slam to anyone. That's not, that's not. I'm just saying. In those free principle churches, you're more likely going to get special music every week. But the Lord's Supper, once a month. Or once a quarter. And I believe the reason for getting special music every week and the Lord's Supper once a month is because we have no theology of worship. We may see from these things that the free principle of worship conflates internal worship with external worship. In other words, it, it doesn't ultimately acknowledge that there's a difference between internal and external worship. That's called egalitarianism. Remember that. So it assumes, in principle, the free principle says this. It's the heart with which something is engaged in. It's the heart that qualifies that activity to be included as a part of the church's worship. Therefore, if you don't include that activity in worship, it might be thought that you're judging my heart and my motives. No, I don't want special music because that could have a performative element. Are you telling me I'm just doing it to entertain people? No. No. But, but if I'm not saying that, well, then it should be included in worship because it's the heart that decides. Now, that's not only, that's not it. There's another principle. It assumes in principle that everything that's God-glorifying and everything that's spiritually edifying to the congregation is by definition worship, and therefore it's acceptable by default as a part of the church's worship, which opens the door to all sorts of things in worship. And again, some people would say, well, I am uncomfortable with that, but I'm not comfortable with that. Or I feel all right about that, but I don't feel so good about that. Well, why? Might just be your culture. Might just be your tradition. We need to get beyond that to theology. 
of worship. Um, If said activity is not included, then, as an element of the church's worship, then it can be thought that, well, you must be denying that that activity is glorifying to God. But it is. Or you must be telling me that that's not edifying. But it is. So an interpretive dance to a classical piece of music may be performed wholly for the glory of God. Maybe, maybe there'll be a scripture reference up on the screen while it's happening. And this is... This is and it may be also be a personal expression of internal worship. Man, if I, if, if I could dance, I hope that I could do it as an expression of internal worship to the Lord. That performance may be edifying to others. Because you know what? You're going to appreciate the gifts God has given that individual. As well as God's gifts to us all of artistic beauty. There's beauty that God gives us in form, in movement. In music. And so we worship. Internal worship. I've known people, and I'm one of those people, who've been moved to give thanks and praise to God by going to a symphony orchestra performance. Maybe others have been moved to praise and thanksgiving by more unorthodox means. I use that word in quotes. What about a gymnastics routine performed to 1 Corinthians 9.24? Uh, I I buffet my body and bring it under subjection or running the race, that whole picture of of athletic um, discipline. And so we see this gymnastics routine and we're reminded with the scripture on the screen of all sorts of things. And there's truth communicated, it's edifying, it's done to the glory of God by the person who's performing it. Therefore, says the free principle of worship, to exclude such things as a part of the church's worship, and that's always how it's seen, to exclude. We're going to see that it's not about excluding, in a sense though it is, but that's not the way we want to approach it. To exclude such things is essentially to deny that all of life is worship. And what did we just do? We just conflated Internal worship with external temple worship. In that way, we are set free. We are set free, if freedom it can be called. Remember, all that we call freedom is not actually freedom. To worship God however we will. But to what extent is this then the true worship of God? And to what extent is this, no matter how well-intentioned, self-made religion, to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, to what extent are we all at times, in various other ways, guilty of self-made religion? Let's come then to uh, fellowship in one another, and these last two are much shorter. So... Is a testimony time an appropriate part of temple worship? Well, uh, testimonies do not have the... Let me just say, we have a service of worship. We want to... We come... God has designed this temple worship in a specific way to be a dialogue in which he speaks, we respond, prayer. So when we come to worship, we come to worship. It's not... We can't do other things at other times. But testimonies do not have the nature of an authoritative word from God to the congregation, 
or a calling upon the name of the Lord. Certainly testimonies are not sinful, neither does God forbid them explicitly in scripture as a part of worship. But let me just put it this way. If we leave testimonies out, have we broken any laws or rules in scripture? Are we still all right? Can we still have biblical worship here? Yeah, we can if we leave testimonies out. If we leave congregational singing out, are we leaving out something God said we ought to do when we worship? Yeah. If we leave preaching out, if we leave reading of scripture out, if we leave prayer out, are we... No, we can't do that. We can leave testimonies out and be fine. That's a sign of something. Testimonies are not prescribed in Scripture. But furthermore, we have to ask, are testimonies worship? Internal? External? Are testimonies by their nature a fitting or a prescribed part of worship? Now, when I use the word worship, do you see something beautiful? It's not about, don't do testimonies. It's about, what's worship? Let us do that. Consider more broadly the example of any open sharing time, prayer requests, etc., during the service of worship. Now, this is where it gets, uh, this is where people, we we just need to be thoughtful about how we do what we do. Um, here too, the emphasis shifts entirely from the vertical nature of worship. Worship is vertical, it's not horizontal, period. Right? So God speaks, we respond. To the horizontal nature of fellowship. We ceased the dialogue with God, we are now dialoguing with one another. And now I, I appreciate our one anothering time. I'm going we'll to talk about that for in a minute. But one of the things as I've been thinking about this, Think about what worship is, and the elders, as we were approaching this time in light of this, we all of a sudden felt in the one anothering time that, oh, we just stopped worshiping. We just stopped the dialogue. And, and it was a feeling that we had, like, oh my goodness, this, this, is, this is what just happened. Okay. Now, did we say, oh, stop? No. No, that's not about that kind of spirit or attitude. So, if we are gathered for temple worship, then it may may be rightly questioned whether this worship should be, worship should be interrupted for fellowship. Let's continue the dialogue. Let's engage in those ingredients God has given us. And that's not just a matter of technicalities. This is not just getting hung up on technicalities. Instead, our desire, what is your desire? What is your desire? It should be to affirm and to safeguard in every way the holiness and the sanctity of what we know temple worship to be. As a, as a more blatant example of this, we have our announcements at the beginning of the service and dispense with them before we begin with worship. I have seen services recently where they have some announcements after the singing. Is that sin? Can you have the announcements? Am I being too technical? Am I being hung up on technicalities to say, I don't think you should have announcements at that place in the service. I'm not saying that's a sin. I'm not saying anyone's not a Christian. I'm not saying that they ought to repent of this. I'm saying they should probably stop doing it. Because it doesn't affirm the dialogical nature of what worship is. 
So, even if your announcements are somewhat edifying, I mean, maybe your announcements are the more the edifying type. Maybe you're doing it to the glory of God. You can do everything to the glory of God. But I don't think you should put announcements there. You've engaged in worship. Don't interrupt the dialogue for that. Um, I would suggest that if a church has a more general participation time as a part of worship, then what would that look like? It would look like qualified men, ideally appointed or approved ahead of time, teaching, exhorting, praying, in accordance with dialogical nature of what worship is. So to look at our one anothering time, our one anothering going back 20 years was not originally prayer requests. I'm not saying there's anything, I'm not, I'm just saying. When we started one anothering, it was simply not prayer requests. In reality, that's why we have prayer meetings um, and why we have to and wish and hope and pray that we'll grow in those times. Uh, but the original point of one anothering was exhortation. And there was a whole thing going on with, with beginning one anothering. Um, now, now it's primarily um, sharing in prayer requests, the sharing of needs and, and prayer requests. Is there anything sinful about that? No, that's a good and healthy thing. That's what we ought to be doing, loving one another, caring for one another. But perhaps a reasonable alternative for our one anothering, especially if it's, if it's going to be prayer requests, sharing, which is a vertical thing, a reasonable alternative perhaps is to divide the time on Sunday morning into two clearly distinguished parts And I'm not sure that this is even the best, but again, with the service for worship, what's worship? With the service for worship marked at the beginning by a formal call to worship. That's why many churches have a call to worship. Now, after we've had this call to worship, we are engaged in this dialogue, covenantal, communally engaged dialogue with God, which we do not interrupt for anything. We are embracing this now wholeheartedly. We do not introduce into this worship anything that is not worship. Sharing. Any kind of special presentations. Any kind of drama. Also, we might consider what are the things that are appropriate to do if we're going to divide the service into two clearly distinguished parts. Does that mean that we could also have a a, a gifts and talents thing right prior to worship? And then we need to exercise wisdom. What are the appropriate things to do prior to worship that that truly are, are good preparation for that as best possible? So the the point is not, well, we can do whatever we want prior to the call to worship. There's still wisdom to be exercised. So one of the things we thought about was what about having a more regular, uh, quarterly hymn sing combined with gifts and talents night so that people can use their gifts in the context of the body to the glory of God. So thirdly and lastly is the offering. 
in its, in its list, last week, we, I think it was last, or the week before, week before, we read the London Baptist Confession gives a list of all the elements or parts of temple worship. And one of the things it does not mention is the offering, which is interesting. Why might that be? Well, I, I tell you, honestly, I just, you know, I don't, I mean, the offering was not a part of the early church worship. That's, that's what I believe. And what a number of people, even, even your run-of-the-mill Joe Blow conservative commentators say that. So, and I don't, well, I, I feel free to disagree with them too. So, uh, I'm just saying that's not a me crazy idea. Okay. Uh, in the first place, why, why don't you think they included it? Well, first place, think about it in terms of your theology. The voluntary giving of money, as each of you individually and privately purposes in your own heart, while that is certainly an expression of internal worship, it is an expression of worship, but internal worship. All that you do at all of life should be worship, and that's a special asset maybe of private worship that does not necessarily fit with the communal and verbally dialogical nature of temple worship. So it, it, we see that it doesn't really fit, necessarily fit with our theology. But in the second place, contributing money to the church treasury or to God is nowhere prescribed in the Bible as a part of worship. Can we not have the offering on Sunday morning and not be breaking any any rules? Well, hopefully, because we haven't been doing it for two years. Um, But, maybe we should say, well, that was an exceptional circumstance. Well, we could have been doing it. So, so can we not have the offering and it be all right? Yes. We're not breaking any divine rules. Can we not have preaching? Can we not have reading of scriptures? Can we not have prayer, congregational singing, Lord's Supper? No. That would be wrong. In Mark chapter 12, oh, in the Old, contributing money was not a part of worship, and in the Old Testament, it was not connected with the temple worship, with the altar or the priesthood. So the giving of tithes and offerings was, was, not a, was not a sacrificial altar priesthood act. It was not connected with worship in that sense under the Old Covenant. So remember the example in Mark chapter 12. Jesus sits down at the temple, out in the temple court, and he watches people putting their money into the offering box. Remember that. Now, there was a poor widow that came along, and he watches her, as she puts her two copper coins into the offering box. What was he watching? An internal expression of worship. But the act itself was not external worship in the sense of drawing near unto God's special presence and calling upon his name, not to mention communal because he was just watching people at different times. That's what they did. You came to the temple, and you went over and put your money in the box. So there was no external worship, temple worship, associated with that act. Third, even the compulsory tithes that were required of Israel 
do not appear to be conceived of as, as temple acts of worship, cultic acts of worship. They were required contributions to be collected for the underwriting of the priesthood and the temple and the care of the poor. Uh, and when you, if, when you buy the book, there's tons of references. All through this message, there's zillions of references to stuff. So, The offering of the first fruits on the altar is fulfilled in the new covenant in our corporate sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving through Jesus. So, when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16... When Paul speaks of the collection for the saints, and he calls it the collection for the saints, he is not describing an external act of worship where people draw near to God's special presence and call on his name. That's not what he's describing. It's not worship like that. Therefore, when he goes on to say this, this is what he goes on to say. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save. Now, I am going to say that some really solid guys argue that he's talking about putting aside your money at home. That's why he says each of you is to put aside and save. So that does sound like you're doing it at home. Then what makes it difficult is he goes on to say, put aside and save as he may prosper, so that Oh, and he says you're supposed to do it on the first day of the week. So maybe Paul is just saying the first day is is a day, a special day. Um, So that's a perfect day for you to put aside your money at home and save it as an act of internal worship. That could be what he's saying. Nevertheless, he talks about the first day of the week, and then he talks about collections, so that no collections be made when I come. So... The other alternative is that he's just speaking practically, and it's just this. Here's the deal. The best day for the common collection is the day when you're all together and you can deposit the money with the deacons. The day when there's the box, and you're all there where the box is. So maybe he's saying, well, the box is there. You get together every Sunday. That's the day. Put your money in the box. That way, he says... When I come, you put aside and save ahead of time. When I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, maybe there'll be a need for a collection for something else. So this is not to say, then, that there might not be still an added joy and gladness in contributing to the collection box on the day when we're gathered together. But today, of course, we do have electronic bill pay, Uh, and other means of electronically sending money and giving. Is there anything sinful about that? No. I prefer not to myself. I I do have my check sent so that then I can put it in the box as an expression of internal worship. I feel no need to do it communally with you. Um, uh, And I don't, in doing that, it's not an outward necessarily calling on the name of the Lord, dialogically, communally. But it can be an appropriate thing. So, Uh, in light of this, we're going to get a new offering box. So it should be here soon. And it's going to be a nice offering box because we wanted to set aside to, to mark that. We've had that wonderful gold box for a long time. 
and it served us well, and there's no necessity for another. But we thought, let's have another box that, that marks that, con- that contribution to the offering box as an act of internal worship for you, that will mark it as something um, special, while not necessarily including it as a part of temple worship. After describing the observance of the Lord's Supper, and then my next thing is conclusion. If you wonder where I am. After describing the observance of the Lord's Supper, Justin Martyr, back in like first or second century, uh, hopefully I'm getting that date right. I didn't put it down here. But he concludes uh, with the, he, he describes the Lord's Supper, and then he concludes with the congregational amen, and everyone says amen, appearing to conclude the whole service. Then he goes on to describe the offering, like this. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president, who succors or helps or aids the orphans and widows, and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want, and those who are in bonds, and the strangers sojourning among us, and in a word, takes care of all who are in need. So to conclude, and perhaps this is the most important thing I will say this morning. Since the very beginning of time, the substance of external worship has never changed. And neither has God at any point in history given up his right to prescribe what worship is and the parts of his worship, how it functions, and what are the things that are part of that functioning. That should not be a disappointment to you or me. It should not be in any way to us a restrictive burden. It should be something wonderful and truly, immensely freeing. You should feel like skipping like whatever, like there's no burden on you at all. It's just free when we grasp this. Because we do not have to decide for ourselves how to worship God. He has revealed this to us. And what God has revealed must be, at all times, something lovely. Something that is beautiful. To the contrary, on the other side of the coin, as one person has pointed out, if we are at liberty to corporately worship God in ways other than that which he has revealed, we are heading for tyranny and bondage. For then we are at the mercy of someone's personal taste or newly discovered insight. 
It's been very easy for us to look at other churches, perhaps, and say, oh, I don't agree with that. Their worship is bad. That's not good. But at the end of the day, what is our theology of worship? Have we ourselves not been as carefully rooted in that theology as we can be and want to be? And do we know why when we look at something else, we are maybe uncomfortable with what we see? A true understanding of the regulative principle of worship will guard against many, I will say sad or unfortunate caricatures of the regulative principle. Because often if you, if you Google regulative principle or if you look it up on the internet, there are many who feel like it, that just, the regulative principle tends naturally to legalism. To, therefore, judgmentalism of everyone who doesn't do it the way we do it. To divisiveness. There are many who look at this and feel as if it's a restrictive and a joyless burden. And there may be, we're all sinners. We can take any good thing that God has given us and turn it into something negative, can't we? Have we all done that? Whether it's the result of a lack of understanding, and I think that's a big part of it, a lot of it is just we're so entrenched in the free principle that maybe we just can't quite grasp what this regulative principle is. Or maybe as the result of sin, sometimes it's sin, it can often be easy for us to view as, as, as negative that which should be seen as something fundamentally positive. It can be easy for us to perceive as ugly that which is in reality beautiful. And so I conclude by saying this. The the regulative principle is not primarily about what we can't do. But about the beauty. And I pray that we've, we've seen a vision of worship. That is beautiful. It is about the beauty of what we are called to pursue. I will also remind us too that, that as long as, if, if, if we ever said, we're not going to have the Lord's Supper anymore, you ought to be up in arms about that. Right? Um, I, I would honestly, if we said, we're only going to do the Lord's Supper once a month again. I would hope that you'd bit a little pushback on that. We don't ever want to leave out the things God has prescribed. But the regular principle of worship is not primarily about what we can't do, but about the beauty of what we are called to pursue. And then to quote in closing uh, one other person, he says this, The child of God will not respond to the regulative principle as if it were an intolerable straitjacket, he will pray, rather, O Lord, teach me, teach us to worship you acceptably. Dear Heavenly Father,
Lord, we thank you that you have called us into this covenantal dialogue with you communally. We thank you that there is this such this 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 thing called temple worship where we carefully reverently draw near to your special presence and hear from you hear you speak to us and then respond to you in prayer calling upon your name. Lord, may we see the beauty of this. And as we see that, may our mindset and our heart, as we gather here each and every Sunday, be all the more filled with expectation and anticipation and longing for this time. Help us as we understand this, why we come, what we do. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to give this time as we're about to sing a place in our affections above every other part of our lives. And Lord, as we pray for these things that we again know that as we have this as as we give this that place in our affections that means that our hearts are going to be in that right place so we pray lord that you will always maintain in this body a true worshiping of you in spirit and in truth and we ask these things in jesus name amen